KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Kristen Johansson. So I'm the crime and justice reporter in Philadelphia for KYW News Radio, and we have this new police commissioner, Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. She came in in February. She's actually been through quite a lot in five months. Obviously, the pandemic, a police officer who was killed in the line of duty, and now also this spike in crime, specifically shootings and homicides. About a week and a half ago or so, she put out this crime action plan, which she spent you know, the last five months or so working on, which is basically her plan for where she sees the police department and how they want to curb violence, specifically gun violence being the number one thing. So I put in a request to speak with her, sit down, and it comes right off of a weekend, one of the deadliest in Philadelphia's recent history with seven people killed and 30 people shot all in one weekend. That was the 4th of July weekend. So it was kind of a perfect time to sit there and talk to her about what her action plan is, what she sees as the major problems, and kind of where the city goes from here, while also speaking to her about what some of the demands are from protesters. The plan itself is comprehensive. It focuses on three pillars, organizational excellence, which is all things internal, making things, uh, making sure that we're doing everything that we can at our peak. And that can be everything from training to equipment to personnel to organizational structure, accountability, all things internal to make sure that we're operating the best way we possibly can. And then there's community engagement and inclusion. How are we including our community into our business processes, making sure that there's voice, that we're neutral, uh, that there, we're enhancing the trust between ourselves and the community. And then there's mutual respect, right? All the things that go into that. And then there's the violence prevention and reduction piece. So a lot of folks, when you think about a crime plan, they tend to go to the violence prevention piece or, or reduction. But quite honestly, the operational side of that, it's a lot of reaction, right? It's reactionary. And so those three things are interrelated because we can have the best crime plan or strategy, actually, which is what it is. You can have the best plan, but if you don't have the resources to put into it, you might as well just put it on the shelf. So when I talk about personnel, when I talk about technology, it's making sure that we have the right people in the right seats. It's making sure that span of control is what it should be. And when I first came here, one of the first things I said was, I'm going to spend my first 30 days, obviously a pandemic came, but it didn't stop the work, right? My first 30 days, I'd be taking a look at what we've done, what works well, what we do, and it's really not the most effective and what we just don't do at all, you know, what we need to get rid of. And when you look at the crime numbers, actually, they've been increasing well over the years, not just in recent months, but well over the years. And we're seeing that back in 2008, when we had some of our really prominent gains as far as decreases in crime, I said, well, let me take a look at that strategy to see what we were doing then that we're possibly not doing now. And again, when I talk about span of control, one of the very noticeable things was we had all of patrol operations under one person. We had investigations split up in two different parts of the department. So creating a deputy commissioner over investigations to ensure that at the strategic level, it's coordinated, there are coordinated efforts was important. Splitting operations or patrol operations back into a north and south to make sure that there is a coordination, but we're basically having enough food on our plate that we can eat all at one time 
you know what I mean? And sorry, on that point, when you say North and South, is that kind of because obviously North Philly is a huge part where the, where the violence is and then Southwest Philly, was that kind of why the decision to. Well, it, we went North South because that's how it was in the past and it was uh, effective, but essentially you're breaking it up into, so you're not putting the whole city under one person. So there's a chief inspector over each house, a part of the city, and then the deputy commissioner over operations or patrol operations um, has those two chief inspectors reporting to them. So making sure, again, span of control is really where it should be. Again, having the right people in the right seats, taking a look at, we're, we're doing that now. So a lot of this stuff is ongoing, especially now as the conversation is occurring around reimagining public safety, what that should look like really starting to build some working groups and areas around looking at what we're responding to. Should this be something that a police officer should respond to as a first responder? Uh, Should we co-respond? You know, again, so when we talk about personnel in that matter, uh, and it was also quite frankly, filling gaps in my leadership team. There were vacancies that had been empty since I'd gotten here. So you had multiple people throughout the department that were wearing many hats for some very, very large areas of responsibilities. So that's what I meant around personnel. uh, personnel. When you look at technology, there's a lot of great things that are available out there. Obviously, we love to expand our body-worn camera program. We ask for funding for that. But it's also utilizing the information and the data through the technology that we have more efficiently. So when I first got here, I noticed we just worked a lot of information coming from everywhere. I get a lot of emails a day uh, about either with information or intelligence. And I walked away at the end of the day saying, okay, well, what do we do? Who's responsible for what? Who's doing what with this? And is there any clear direction as far as roles and responsibilities around how this technology is used? The answer was no. And so by coordinating our efforts, not just internally, but at the local, state and federal level, by having, when you, for example, when you look at violent crime, right, by making sure we all come to the table, all stakeholders have been coming to the table once a week for the past several weeks now, we walk out of these meetings with a very clear understanding of deliverables, action items, asks of other departments, whether it's at the local level, whether it's PHA, SEPTA, the universities, And then also at the state and federal levels, the DA's office is on the call. We now have DA's assigned to the district. So there's situational awareness. So when we present a case for charging, they have the full understanding from start to finish why we're asking for what we're asking for. And then also at the federal level, there are some cases out there that require or should require federal prosecution, which means more stringent consequences. Having all those folks at the table on a weekly basis, gives everyone the same situational awareness and understanding of what's going on with these shootings in the city, but also in respective districts as well. So a lot of it is refocusing our efforts around communication, coordination, making sure that we have real-time deliverables, because again, a strategic plan is long-term and it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. But when we get out of these meetings, we also walk out of these meetings with things that can be done in the short term to either get ahead of the next shooting or to identify individuals who are also at risk of being the next victim. Who can we identify for services through our other partners here in the city? So it's far more comprehensive than just saying, "Okay, put cops on dots. We know the data takes us here, flood the area and just be visible. It's okay. Now we're flooding the area. What are these officers supposed to do? 
And once they get information, once they make contact with people, how are they supposed to, one, gather that information and who to whom do they push the information back out to? So it's really operationalizing theories and strategies that have been around for the longest time, but making it very clear on the how to get it done and then how we go back and measure. There has been a huge spike in crime and violent crime specifically in shootings. We had a very deadly weekend, but generally the homicide rate, more than 210 people, I think right now it's about 214 at this moment, people have been killed mostly by guns. Uh, Last year at this time, we're at 165. So that's a significant spike. And then as far as shootings and the number of people that have been shot, we're getting close to 1,000 people that have been shot. A top commander once told me that the way that they see you know, shootings in general is a failed homicide. We are in quite a violent time in Philadelphia. And so I wanted to kind of gauge why she thinks there's such a, a spike. Why do you think crime is so sharply increasing right now? You know, without being a sociologist or an epidemiologist, I mean, there's a lot of factors that have contributed. We're not just seeing it here in Philadelphia. We're seeing it all over the country, you know, and and I'm not being dismissive of the fact that crime is increasing here. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, I used to go back and run to my mom and say, well, such and such gets to go play, blah, blah, blah. And my mom would say, well, I'm not such and such as mom. I'm only concerned and worried about you. You're my responsibility. So it's the same thing. I understand that folks don't necessarily want to hear that crime is up in all major cities all over the country. But with that said, as it relates specifically to uh, Philadelphia, there are so many factors that are contributing. Uh, obviously, the pandemic, we, we really began to see the increase spike in the, in the volume that it did when the stay home orders were put in effect. A lot of people were staying at home, those who were paying attention to law and adhered to law. And then those who were very intentional on waking up and causing harm or killing or shooting someone, they did that. And it was easier uh, for them to find who they were looking for because there's not as many people out on the street. We also know that there's a lot of disputes over uh, their social media beefs. There's also beefs over territory. There's a lot of people getting out of prison that are seeking to reclaim their territories. Um, there's a lot of dispute over narcotics, narcotic sales. There's a lot of things. And then you talk about, you add on to that, all the other social determinants that we're seeing being magnified by the pandemic, right? What a lot of folks have been saying for a long time with the haves and the have-nots and the inequities and who has access to wealth and you know capital and income, we're really seeing that being magnified now that we're working through a pandemic, the housing and you know, low incomes or no incomes. I mean, I've talked to folks personally out here, gotten out of my car, spoken to them and said, they're like, look, I got to eat. And I tell them, you know, I don't condone anything that you're out here doing. But a lot of these folks, if they had somewhere to be at eight o'clock in the morning as a job, they would get up and go to work. So there's a lot of things. And then the other part is, you know, it's, it's an elephant in the room, but it's not an elephant in the room for me. You know, there has to be more accountability in the community. We're killing ourselves. Kids are dying and there has to be personal accountability as well. The police cannot arrest their way out of or solve these crimes by fixing the learned hopelessness that we're seeing in these communities. It's multifaceted. There's a lot of complexities. And like I said, we're but one part of it. But given everything that's been going on here lately, 
we have been working in proactive mode, but we've really been working in reactive mode just because of the volume, the pace with the resources that we have. Do you have any data to back up that it has anything to do with the jail population decreasing through the pandemic? You know, anecdotally, so I wouldn't be able to give a definite answer to that. However, we do know that there have been people released and they're reoffending or they've been arrested and released for lesser crimes. And then they get out and then they commit more serious crimes because looking at the totality of their criminal history, they've had violent crimes in the past. So we have come across instances like that. And I think, again, I'm going to go back. It sounds like I'm stressing this collaboration piece a lot. It's important to stress this because this is what we are now ironing out when we meet every Tuesday. The DA's office is on the call and we're saying, hey, this person, we have a want for this person now. We believe they're responsible for a shooting. They were just let out on such and such date. Why is this? And so the communication is happening as opposed to the finger pointing, not just in a room, but finger pointing that I've even seen upon my arrival here that happens and still happens in public or social media platforms, right? So uh, we're working through all of that. But while I, again, while I can't give a definite answer as it relates to that, I can say we have seen some folks that have been released for lesser offenses and they come out and commit violent crimes. And we're just, it seems like we're chasing our tail time and time again as it relates to those individuals. There's obviously calls to defund the police and kind of as you can put out this crime plan, Um, Everybody has their own definition. I think the broad definition is to be able to move some of the policing responsibilities towards the community as far as, like we had said, addictions and overdoses and mental health issues that police are typically called for but don't have, shouldn't be the ones necessarily to respond. Have you had started to have those conversations? And when you talk, kind of the second part of this is, we talk a lot about stakeholders, but can you identify kind of, because I don't think the general public understands what a stakeholder is. And so I just wanted to see if you could identify kind of who you mean. The conversation is new as it relates to the killing of George Floyd, but the conversation has been ongoing for quite some time. And if you go back to the plan, you'll see in there that one of the action items that's for further on down the road is the civilianization study. And it's exactly that. So, I mean, I happen to come from a police accountability background. And so being hired as someone that was, you know, let's not forget, I was hired not just just to address violence, but also to implement change and reform. And what that looks like also has an impact on our ability to really be effective with fighting crime and preventing crime. So all of that to say the conversation's not new. Uh, You will find a lot of police officers who will say, yes, we absolutely agree. We should not be first responders uh, to someone who's in crisis. Or if, you know, and I've used the analogy before, when we find someone that has a kidney issue, we don't call the police. We send them to a doctor, right? We put them on dialysis or they get a transplant. Whenever you call the police, it automatically criminalizes whatever the issue is, even though, I mean, we see it. It's because of the system we represent, the uniform that we wear. So even when I hop out the car, as I do, and just say, hello, it's not a, hey, right away. It's a, "Uh uh-oh, what did I do? And then when they realize that I'm not here to enforce any action or a law or take police action, then they have the opportunity to see the human behind the badge, for lack of a better term, right? But when you call 911 or you call the police, where there's no crime involved, 
it continues to criminalize. So we would love to not be first responders for a lot of these calls. But we also recognize that there are times when we'll have to be co-responders or maybe we don't show up first, but we show up after the fact, if there's a threat of harm or danger or weapons or violence, right? So it doesn't mean that you completely wipe out a police officer from responding because that's not necessarily possible in a lot of situations. But where there's a dispute, uh, where there's no violence, no threat of harm or violence, where someone's in crisis, if someone has a question about a code enforcement or, or whatever it is, we need to really start thinking about when you call the police, right? Because you're, you're, when you call the police, you call a full, you call the full package, you call an armed police officer. And is that necessarily the response needed for whatever they're calling for at that time? So with all of that said, with me saying that, yes, we agree we shouldn't respond to everything. I think we need to be very cognizant of the fact that the police budget does not encompass all of a a bunch of extra fluffy nicety things. The majority of our police budget is personnel costs. So when you start talking about defunding or divesting or taking money away from the police department, you're laying off police officers. And until we get to a place where we can say, we know we do not need 6,500 authorized police officers in the city. We're not in a place right now where we can start laying off police officers. We see crime is going up. We see the need to be in multiple places at the same time uh, for various uh, events or critical incidents. We see the need for police to be highly visible in certain areas. And right now, quite frankly, it's been a challenge because we've had to pull resources from other places where we would usually deploy them so they can be out and be proactive. We're putting them in other places so we can respond or be visible for other events in the city. So laying police officers off is not the answer. You're always going to need the police. But I do believe that those who handle the money need to be creative about making sure that those social services and other agencies do get the funding that they need. What would you say to police officers? Is it really the lowest police morale that yeah. I at least remember? Yeah, I mean, and, and I've seen it. I've seen it. And it, it's all throughout the department. And it's, it's always a tough one. Because morale is something that's intrinsically controlled. It's something that the individual determines, you know what, I'm good today or I'm not. And then as leadership, I can do, the team can do what we can to make sure that folks have what they need. This is like, again, you have the pandemic. We're essential employees. We are coming to work. We have been coming to work. Then you have the overlay of everything that's happened around George Floyd and accountability and reform. And depending on where you are, you may or may not have a true understanding of what that means. Some people can walk away and see that see this as being anti-police because there are people out there, quite frankly, that are against the police. And they have no problem with saying that, right? And then you have the more balanced folks that are saying, look, I understand you can hold police accountable, but I can support you at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. I fall there, right? And then I use analogies a lot. Sometimes they get me in trouble. But, you know, I remember when I was younger, my mom used to discipline me or punish me. She would say, it doesn't mean that I don't love you. So in my role, I understand that there's an anti-police sentiment. But in my role, my job is to not only hold us accountable and publicly say, hey, we messed up on this one. But at the same time, relay in the best way that I possibly can. We do support you. 
as long as, you know, we, we got to provide you with the training and the equipment that you need, right, to ensure that systems are in place to set you up to thrive and succeed, which is what I talk about with the organizational excellence piece, right, in the plan. But you got to understand, too, that I'm going to hold those accountable that need to be held accountable. It doesn't mean I love my department or my officers any less. I haven't abandoned anyone. I'm here. Whether they see me or not, because it's thousands of people, some people see me, some people don't, but I'm here. If days off are canceled, I'm here. I'm right in here with you. So I think, again, it's just, it's, I don't even want to call it a perfect storm because it's not perfect. It's an imperfect storm of a whole bunch of things happening at once that are very uncomfortable. And for most folks, you know, cops, we, there's two things we don't like. We don't like the way things are and we don't like change. And so even without a pandemic, without an increase in, you know, in crime, just take one of these things that are one of these major things um, and we'd be uncomfortable. And so when folks are uncomfortable, when there's new ways of thinking and you introduce more and more diversity and thought and just have more people at the table and new ways of problem solving, people are going to be uncomfortable. And so we all together have to move through this because what's going on right now is bigger than me. It's bigger than the police department. It's bigger than any union. It's been bigger than any individual. This is a movement and it would behoove us to take part in what's happening now so we can be at the table, utilize our seat at the table because the train is going to leave with or without us. So I encourage everyone to hang in there. Remember why we're here, the oath that we swore to uphold No one told us that it would be easy, but this is why we answered the call. This is the call. This is why we answered the call to servant leadership. No one said that it would be fun and easy the whole time or comfortable, but I would say hang in there because all of us here, including myself, are right there with them. What has been the most untrue or false thing that you've heard about yourself (laughs) throughout your last four months? Seriously. I mean- I'm laughing clear the air kind of and and you have a chance to say whatever. No, I'm laughing because I mean, some stuff, I mean, even as of today, well, there's the one that I've been on vacation for three weeks. But, you know, one, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been in leadership for a very long time. I would never, um, especially during times like this, but I would never cancel people's days off and then just go kick it somewhere on an island doing whatever. First of all, we're in a pandemic, that part. But I'm laughing because it's ridiculous. But two, uh, and then I think apparently I'm right now as we speak, I'm supposedly on the West Coast interviewing for jobs that aren't even open. So there's that. Oh, and my old job. And so pick one, right? I'm laughing not to be dismissive, but it's funny because there's so much going on right now. And I understand you talk about low morale. You know, folks find solidarity when they can find something or someone to be the boogie monster. And I guess I'm it. And, and that's fine. I, I'll, I'll take that. But at some point, you know, we have to be willing to use common sense, get past the, the petty distractions, the chatter, and really come together and figure out together, especially since folks are being given the opportunity to have a say, how we manage, how do we serve? And how do folks internally want to be led? So I want to say across the board in the city, feel very hopeless right now because of the pandemic, because of the violence over and over again. What is something, if you can answer this, what's something that we can do? You feel so hopeless. You want to stop, you know, when kids are shot and killed. You want to do something. When you hear shootings all night, 
and then there's the pandemic and you feel completely out of control and like nothing's right with the world. Yeah. I mean, and, and I wouldn't even say just as it relates to crime, right? So we're talking a bigger picture and we haven't even talked about this, but you know, there's also commissioner outlaw, the mom, the human being, right? I had sons. It's dealing with, you know, and I'm with my oldest now, the difference between my oldest and my youngest is that my oldest graduated from college and was expecting to go out in the world as an adult. You know, his season got started and then was abruptly ended. All these things, right? You're told you got one job, go to school, do well, be a positive contributor to your community service, you know, all that stuff. And he's like, I did all that. And the rug was swept completely under me. On top of that, being isolated in a completely new place, uh, isolated via quarantine, not really being familiar where you are, that takes, it has an impact on folks, you know? So whether you talk about isolation, your world being flipped upside down, uncertainty, and then my youngest, you know, who just finished his freshman year of college, thinks it's time to party. Oh, okay, cool. I'm done. Online classes? Yeah, right? So I'm saying all that to say because I can relate. So you, when you add the crime piece to it, when you add the violence, right, or you, the, the fireworks that everyone's hearing that sound like explosives and missiles, right, you add that to the uncertainty around just what everyone's feeling in their day-to-day lives. Oh, great. I can go back to work, but I don't have childcare oh shoot, nobody's hiring right now. Or, you know, with the skills that I have, I can't find anything within, right? So there's all of that. And then there's this disconnect. We're working in complete contrary to who we are as human beings. We are social beings. And so I'm communicating with you now through a computer, right? Funerals. I've attended many while people were socially distant in the pews. You couldn't even reach over to console anybody, or, you know, it's taboo to give a hug or God forbid you don't have a mask on all these things. And then you add violence and crime. So I'm sharing this, my personal story. I'm sharing what I've, what I've experienced because I'm saying I understand. And it's all completely normal uh, to feel that. Um, but and even I now putting my other hat back on, I never took it off. But as commissioner, recognizing that people, people still want to see us. They still want to hear from us. And we're going, well, wait. Remember, there's a pandemic and all these other things going on, so we can't really interact with you in the same ways. So let's have a virtual meeting. And so for some, that works because they still see us, but it's not the same because you don't have that same personal social interaction. So I would say for those who want to be a part, I would say publicly, um, if you can, if you have the time, take part in a lot of the virtual meetings that are still happening. Uh, you know, obviously, as the city begins to slowly open, uh, capacity is increasing. If you feel comfortable in attending a 10, I know restaurants are opening. I'm not going. <laughs> but, you know, slowly start to re-engage in issues that concern you. Be vocal. And I would also say this, because it's important. We talked about morale with police. Our police officers are human beings too. And when I talk about community, it's not just our external community. We have an internal community here as well. Police officers need to hear that they're supported. It's okay to say, you did that right. It's okay. You did that great. Thank you, officer such and such, for doing what you did when you responded to whatever it is. It's okay to say that. But I've also heard personally people say to me that I feel reticent about publicly supporting our police because I don't want people to bash me or to call me and send me hate mail, which, which is happening, right? Or to come out and counter protest or demonstrate 
when I'm showing support. We all have to work together in solidarity. We all want the same things for the most part. And it's okay to support us and it's okay to hold us accountable. So I would say in whatever the avenues that we have available to us now, show up and be present. But I'd also say it's okay to take time for yourself. It's okay to uh, focus on your own wellness because I also believe, and this is anecdotal, that this is also contributing to a lot of what we're seeing. There's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of uncertainty. That has an impact on one's mental well-being. And until we acknowledge that and we're willing to get rid of the stigma and say, all right, some of us need to get our mind right, we're going to continue where we are. That was my conversation with Danielle Outlaw, the second time I've sat down with her since she started here, going over her crime plan pretty extensively. And so I asked if she had any final thoughts. It's almost five months that I've been here, and I think we've got a little bit of everything (laughs) while I've been here. But again, this is just the beginning. And we are experiencing as a community, as a police department, something that no one has ever experienced before. No one. And so a lot of the stuff is going to be new. A lot of the stuff is going to be making up things as it occurs. And then some of it, um, you know, the way we did things in the past, it won't apply because this is a completely new uh, set of circumstances for us. But with all of that said, you know, we're all here for the long haul. We'll get through it. But the way to get through it is to make sure that we do it together. So this is the first part of a series now on the crisis throughout the city with the surge of violence. I also got a chance to speak with District Attorney Larry Krasner about what his office is doing. And you can hear that conversation on the next episode of In-Depth.